think I was on the whole time before. Good job, Chris. All right, so uh, Matthew chapter 4. Uh, if you uh, don't have the Bible, a uh, Bible of your own, we'll uh, have it up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, not only Matthew 4, if you're the kind of person that likes to bookmark things, we will also hang out for a while in Luke 4. All right, so Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Uh, but if you don't have a Bible, we'll have it on the screens. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, there's lots of free ones online, but we can like, give you a physical one. You can take that one that's uh, under the seat there. You can pull that out and open it up, and then you just call it yours and, and just love it and read it. Uh, we believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but the best of all the most important things uh, is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. Uh, we believe that, uh, that God wants you to know him and have your life filtered through the lens of knowing him, and if the scriptures are what he uses to do that in you, then do the little logic problem real quick, and uh, the, the common sense thing is to go chasing after him in his word, and he'll do good things with it. All right, so Matthew chapter four, <coughs> excuse me, um, so it's week number eight, week number eight of our effort to walk through uh, the gospel of Matthew together. It's the last week of our first little section. I told you, uh, I've told you several times now that we're going to try to break this up uh, into smaller segments. And so uh, we'll take a short break starting next week, come back to it in about a month. Uh, But we've got one more little piece to dig into today because Matthew's not quite finished introducing us to the king, all right? Uh, If you haven't been around for the first several weeks of this series, especially if you're like brand new to the Bible, uh, Matthew is a gospel account uh, written to a Jewish audience. And so what that means is this. Uh, It tells the story of Jesus's life and work, but it does so through the specific lens of showcasing Jesus as the long-awaited and foretold messianic king that the Jews were supposed to be looking for. All right, that's Matthew's aim. That's what he's chasing after. And so Matthew makes incredibly frequent use of either directly pointing to Old Testament prophecy about the coming Messiah. He does it way more than the other three gospel writers. Or by making countless allusions or references to Israel's own kind of checkered history. And the reason for that is because Jesus is re-experiencing that history. Uh, he's, and he's achieving covenant faithfulness where Israel over and over and over and over and over over again, and excuse me for skipping ahead in the story, over and over and over again, failed to achieve covenant faithfulness. Israel dropped the ball on that every generation. And so Jesus steps in and actually achieves where Israel did not. Uh, And that reality was kind of like kind of been a major focus for us the last couple of weeks as we've looked at Jesus's, uh, what's commonly referred to as Jesus's baptism and wilderness temptation. All right, those two stories. Um, Even though Jesus has no sin of his own uh, to repent of, uh, his people consistently and repeatedly failed to repent each and every time God sent them a prophet throughout their history. They always killed their prophets, right? And so the long-awaited mediator and king stands up and owns repentance on behalf of his people. What we, what we argued a couple weeks ago is that Jesus comes forward to be baptized by John in what, we, what I called, or what I, I think is right to call, substitutionary obedience. All right? He comes up out of the water. The Spirit descends down and rests upon him. The Father speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. I imagine that being James Earl Jones, but that's just me. All right. He is anointed and coronated as the King. That's the point of the story. But that's not the end of Jesus' kingly mediatorial work. It's only the beginning of that work. And so last week we saw Jesus re-experience Israel's wilderness wandering, a time that their dependence and their trust in the Lord and, and, and God's provision for them was repeatedly tested and repeatedly found wanting. 
To read the wilderness wanderings in, in, in the, the Torah, in the, in the first five books of the, or in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. To read those it leaves you wondering why Israel couldn't get, get things figured out. Why they repeatedly rejected God and, and failed to trust Him. And that's exactly what Jesus comes and does better. We're told that Jesus fasts for 40 days and he endures three distinct temptations by the devil. All opportunities, we'll call them, uh, to, to lay aside his perfect obedience and instead go get what is pleasing to him and what glorifies him all on his own. And, but Jesus trusts the Father's authority and he trusts the Father's care and he trusts the Father's provision above anything that he can pursue for himself which is not something that Israel could claim during their time in the wilderness. And so Jesus refuses to bite on the temptations. And in that, he achieves where covenant Israel repeatedly failed. But where do we go now? Huh? Well, Matthew is not quite done introducing the king. And so if you haven't noticed, there are kind of three mini sections in this initial first section of introduction. Um, we've seen details surrounding Jesus' lineage and birth. That's section one. Section two is that we've seen the introduction of the king as an adult who's now stepping into his mediatorial role. But there's a third section. And now Matthew's going to position all the players for the main act. All right? The king has a specific mission in front of him. But that specific mission has a very specific setting and context, geography even, that it's supposed to play out within. And so it's time to get moving. And so uh, chapter 4, verse 12 Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12, it says this. It says, Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. All right, so that is quite the sentence to open up this new section with, right? When Jesus heard that John was arrested. So what is going on? Like... Like if you just randomly heard that, a, that somebody you knew had been arrested, maybe even a cousin of yours, that was supposed to be the forerunner of your ministry and your work, like you've got, you want to know some things about the details. All right, so what happened? Well, the wild-eyed prophet out in the woods telling everyone to repent finally made the wrong person mad. That person was Herod Antipas. Um, if you weren't here when we talked about it several weeks ago, Herod Antipas is one of the sons of Herod the Great, uh, the guy from Jesus' birth narrative that got all angry and weirded out and tried to have Jesus killed to protect his own throne. You know that guy? Um, Herod dies just a couple of years after that story plays out, uh, but he didn't have a succession plan. And so Rome, uh, Judea was a client state of Rome at the time, and so Rome breaks up uh, Herod the Great's kingdom into four uh, smaller kingdoms called tetrarchies, okay? And so there's a leader over each of these different regions. Three of Herod's sons are in charge of three of the Her uh, tetrarchies, and he's got a sister who's in charge of like a small city-state kind of deal too. And so Herod Antipas, one of Herod the Great's sons, sits as the Roman client king of the newly sort of created region of Galilee. Galilee's always kind of been a, a colloquial name, but now it's a Roman province, all right? And so even though crazy old daddy Herod is now out of the picture, can you imagine that that wasn't the end of the drama in his family? Anybody, anybody shocked to hear that? Um, a woman named Herodias, and I'll let you think for a second on how to spell that name, Herodias, who was the daughter of Antipas's half-brother, Herod Aristobulus, all right? Uh, that, that the one, um, 
the one that, that's the one that Herod the Great killed because he tried to get his dad's throne. So, lovely family. Um, Herodias was the daughter of Aristobulus, and Herodias married a different half-brother of Antipas, a guy named Herod Philippus, or we often call him just Philip, all right, who was one of the other tetrarchs. Uh, and so she and Antipas had an adulterous relationship behind Philip's back. She divorced Philip and married Antipas instead. And if you're keeping score, he's still her uncle. I'll give you one guess as to which wild-eyed prophet had something to say about that. Anybody t- any takers? <laughs> and so Antipas has John arrested. He wants him dead, but he's, John's got a sizable following. And if you're a client king of Rome, there's exactly one thing that can't happen on your watch, an uprising. You can't let that happen. So even though Antipas wants him gone, he just arrests him. And he holds him in prison for a while, maybe as much as a year or two. The timeline's fuzzy. And, and so we're told in verse 12, that Jesus gets wind of this and decides that it's time for himself to relocate. But it's important to pay attention which direction he moves, because I've seen a lot of people try to teach this and then end up getting it very, very wrong. Matthew tells us that Jesus withdrew to the region of Galilee, and that word in our heads, it sounds like a shrinking away. It sounds like Jesus is avoiding the problem in that moment. Uh, But that's not what Matthew is saying. Uh, The Greek that Matthew uses here just means to move from one place to another. It's just a transitional word, right? And so Jesus is in the region of Judea at this moment. And the timeline is weird here. We'll talk about it more in just a second. Uh, but after the baptism and the wilderness wandering, Jesus is hanging around in Judea for just a little bit. Uh, John, meanwhile, transitions back up to Galilee, north of there, all right? Uh, and so where Antipas has jurisdiction in Galilee. And when he gets to Antipas's region, Antipas has him arrested. And when Jesus hears of the arrest, where does he go? He goes directly in to Antipas' jurisdiction. He moves into Galilee himself. And so this is the exact opposite of shrinking away. Jesus walks right into the fire here. Now, the timeline is complicated here. We're not exactly sure how much time has passed between Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and John's arrest. There's a lot of fuzzy stuff going on. Uh, trying to harmonize the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, with the Gospel of John is not a light task. Uh, but according to John 3 and 4... We know that Jesus is hanging around in Judea for at least a little bit. Some theories range from one to eight months, all right? And during that time, during that time, Jesus seems to be doing some teaching, and he's performing some miracles, and if you ascribe to what's called the two cleansings theory, then he appears to cleanse the temple for the first of two times during that time period. Jesus also meets several of the men who are going to become his disciples during that time. They start following Jesus around. Uh, They are even retroactively called his disciples. Uh, But there also seems to be some slow growth there. Like it's not all at once. They don't just just immediately buy in with everything. They're in and out of the picture. Uh, And so we're not studying John though this morning. We're studying Matthew. And Matthew just flies right past all of this stuff. It's not not that those, those moments are unimportant. It's just that They don't seem to be necessary to Matthew to tell the story that he's trying to tell in order for his specific audience to hear and believe that Jesus is the Christ. So Matthew just flies right past all of it. And so even though there are political things in play and spiritual things in play and relational things in play, Matthew focuses his audience's attention or our attention on the political side of all of this. The false king makes a move. And so the true king makes a move as well. The chess pieces are moving around. And and we see the first piece of why in in verse 2. 
Instead of going back to quiet and overlooked Nazareth, we're told that Jesus moves to the town of Capernaum. Uh, if you're looking at it on a map, maybe you've got a fancy Bible with maps in the back. Uh, Capernaum is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Right? Um, but wh- why would Jesus go there? Well, a couple of reasons. Um, the first is that Capernaum is a bigger place than Nazareth. It's not a lot bigger, but it's bigger than Nazareth because Nazareth, Nazareth is nothing. That was a hard sentence for me to say. All right, so Nazareth is really, really small. It's, it was obviously overlooked. I think that's the reason why Jesus started out there. Capernaum is a little bit bigger. There, it's a bigger community. But there's, and so the king who, who began in obscurity is taking steps towards slowly moving to prestige. He's working his way there. On his own timeline, but he's working his way there. But there's a second reason, and that reason is found at the tail end of verse 2. We're told that he moves to the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. As in, the ancient tribal boundaries of Old Testament Israel. Rome doesn't use those terms. Israel in those days didn't even use those terms. So why would Matthew use those terms? Well, if you haven't picked up a very obvious theme coursing out throughout the book of Matthew yet, that's not an accident. Matthew tells us explicitly in verse 14. Look at it. It says, So that, he moves to the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, uh, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them light has dawned. And so Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 9 here. Just full bore quotes it. A text that if you've ever hung around a church during Advent season, you've come across before. Uh, we, we frequently bring that up during the Christmas series, right? And for good reason, because Matthew attaches it to Jesus here. And so we have license to do the same. Um, but why does Matthew tie Isaiah 9 to Jesus? Well, you need to understand the time period and the context that Isaiah is written in. Middle of the 8th century, God's covenant people are split into two kingdoms, ten tribes in the north, which includes Naphtali and Zebulun. And called the kingdom of Israel, two kingdoms in, or two tribes in the south called the kingdom of Judah. Both kingdoms are a mess, a giant mess. And God raises up Isaiah to be a prophet to both Israel and Judah, calling both to repentance, even though both continually ignored that call. And so the threat coupled to that repentance call was that God would send Assyria to attack Israel, and then later down the road, he would send Babylon to attack Judah. That's Isaiah's message, or at least the first half of Isaiah's message. And if you're looking at a map, the pathway, the fairway, we could call it, for both of those warring empires to come marching through, territories of Naphtali and Zebulun, they're the first ones to get hit every time an army invades. 750 years before Jesus stepped onto the scene, the villages that make up northern Galilee are the doormat that multiple warring empires are going to march themselves through on their way to enact God's justice upon his people for their sin. How do you like to live there? You want to be on the southern end when Assyria comes in. You don't want to be in the north. And even before that dark day comes, God slips in a promise before he gets to his bigger promise later in Isaiah, 
God slips in the promise, even as he's promising the dark day will come, that after that dark day, the region will also get to be the pathway that light is reintroduced. Those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus is going to make at least one more short trip back to Jerusalem. Scholars debate whether it's one or two. Uh, He will eventually travel another time after those one or two uh, because that's where the prophets always go to die and he's got a mission. But other than that, Jesus is going to spend the vast majority of the rest of his life and work in and around the Sea of Galilee. And the reason for that, Matthew says, is because God is making good on an ancient promise. It's no accident The Messiah needs to hang out in that region because that region is going to receive the blessing first. The region that first tasted the punishment for sin is the very region that gets to first taste Jesus' redemptive work. And so, yes... Jesus moves back to Galilee uh, as kind of an act of defiance toward Herod Antipas. But even far more importantly, I would argue, he moves back to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali because there's messianic work to accomplish there. And Jesus isn't going to miss the ball on that one. But what does Jesus do once he gets there, right? What, What does he make himself busy with once he posts up in Capernaum? Well, verse 17 tells us. It says, from that time... Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Hey, that sounds familiar. Where have we heard that before? Isn't that exactly what John the Baptist was preaching before he got, you know, got like arrested? And it absolutely is. You want to know why? It's because the herald did his job. We like that phrase around here in New England, right? Do your job. That's what John the Baptist did. He did his job. John did not have his own agenda. He didn't have his own personal ministry ambition. The task before him was to prepare the way of the Lord, to prepare the people. And that's exactly what he did. He primed the pump for Jesus to step in and take over from there. But we need to take notice of how Matthew frames this moment, all right? Because this, this is a massive sentence. What we're looking at here is a statement of summary, all right, from that time. Matthew uses that phrase from that time only two times in his entire gospel account. And both of them are transitional moments. They're moments that uh, he kind of keeps close to his chest so he can play them when it's necessary to show us something important. All right. And so uh, we're supposed to pay attention to it because the agenda changes from that moment on. And so Matthew uses, uh, uses it the other time in his gospel account in Matthew chapter 16, all right? Uh, and it's where Jesus transitions uh, from just kind of going around and teaching and healing people to actively heading towards the cross. He starts teaching from that time that he was to suffer and die, we're told, in Matthew 16. All right? Uh, forget about any of this nonsense you have of me sitting on some throne that you're creating. No, this is the purpose for which I came, to die on the cross. And so what, what transition are we seeing in chapter 4? It's that the time of preparation has come to an end. Jesus' work and ministry are now beginning in earnest. And it's time to get down to the business of why he's actually here. In chapter 16, we see a singular focus of Jesus heading to Jerusalem to get to the cross. And so what is the singular devotion that his initial work and ministry are aiming to towards in chapter 4? What, what, where's, where is his ambition headed right now? Well, Matthew tells us. We don't have to guess. Tells us that from that time on, he, he went around preaching, calling people to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Calling people to turn away from their sin, to, to despise their sin, revile their sin, cling instead to righteousness before the Lord, to see their sin the exact same way that God sees their sin and put it away forever. That's their aim. That's his aim. Now, it's my suspicion, just my guess, but I like to think I'm a smart person. But it's my, shut up. It's my suspicion. It's my suspicion that probably causes a little bit of dissonance in people to, to hear that Jesus' ambition, the thing that drove him, was to call people to repentance. Doesn't that sound different than what we t- typically imagine Jesus to be? Right? Repentance is probably not your first thought when you come to think of what is the summary of Jesus' life and work. In fact, it may not even be an option on the list for you. We tend to think rather of other amazing things that Jesus' work about Jesus' work and character. We think of loving the least of these, and we think of his compassion, and we may even think of him putting the religious leaders in their place. Those are good things about Jesus. And to be clear, he did every single one of those things. In fact, he did them at a level that just confounded not only his opponents, but even his followers. They were constantly confused by how he just turned the world upside down. Absolutely so. But despite how wonderful and disarming those things are, and despite what modern ad campaigns may try to attempt to play up and make much of, that's not how the Bible actually describes the main focus of Jesus' initial work. His unmatched grace and his unmatched love and his unmatched compassion all fit within the category, within the file folder of his primary initial work of calling everyone around him to repentance, not the other way around. We're not trying to figure out how to bend repentance into the, all those other supposedly nicer things about Jesus. So we talked about this a few weeks ago. When, whenever we try to portray the king, guys, we need to be really, really careful to portray him as he truly is. Whenever we try to speak on behalf of the king, we need to be very, very careful to never say something that the king wouldn't actually say presumption here has eternal consequences because John the Baptist played his role perfectly, flawlessly because, well, he gave the king's message verbatim. And anything less from us will likely lead people away from salvation rather than towards salvation. And it's because partial saviors can't save people. We need the real Jesus or we're hopeless. We need all of Jesus or we have nothing. But last I checked, again, this is just me, The real Jesus never seemed to struggle with gathering people to himself. He doesn't need ad campaigns because look at verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, uh, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. All right, so that seems abrupt, right? Like we're all on the same page. That, that That's a weird way to call people to yourself. Walk around, see somebody you never met before, say, follow me. And they're like, okay, let's go. All right. If you did that, I'd question your sanity, all right? And it's because it is abrupt. 
If all we had was Matthew's account uh, of this story, just at face value, it would seem to us that this is the very first interaction with, uh, with Jesus for four of his disciples, right? Peter, Andrew, James, and John. But as I mentioned a moment ago, Matthew's timeline jumps way ahead. Right? If we, if, and so we fill some of the holes of that timeline with John's gospel. John chapter 1 tells us that Andrew was one of a couple of followers of John the Baptist who left John and began following Jesus instead. Uh, that, while Jesus, that would have happened while Jesus was still in Judea and would have happened before John was arrested. So we're already well beyond that part of the story, right? Andrew actually uh, goes to get Peter, whose name's Simon at the time. Jesus seems to change his name. Um, and so Andrew tells Peter, hey, come meet this man that we think is the Messiah. You got to come meet him. Let's go. Uh, That's how that interaction goes. And so he brings Peter to Jesus. And while their names are not mentioned in that part of John's gospel, the Zebedee boys are likely in that mix as well. So why would Galilean fishermen's, fishermen's, fishermen? There's no S on the end of that word. Why would Galilean fishermen be down hanging around in Judea where Jesus could have met them? Like what's going on there? We're not told. We're not told, but probably it's that they were faithful Jews. They longed to do what was right by the Lord, and Jews were supposed to travel for the Passover down to the city. So they were probably in Judea for the Passover. That would have been normal for them. And they run into Jesus while there, and they begin to follow him. They interact with him, and Jesus begins gathering more and more disciples around himself. And they hear him teach, and they watch him perform signs and wonders. And, and they begin to personally commit to following him. Okay, so if, if they've had multiple and even extended interactions with Jesus before this moment in Matthew 4, what's going on here in Galilee? Why does it seem like Jesus is calling to, them to something that they haven't been called to yet? Well, they got to deal with that, right? Why is Jesus calling him, these guys to follow him now? Well, there's some debate. There's actually quite a bit of debate about that, but it's not about some critical question concerning the timeline. We're, we're okay with that. It's about trying to balance the normal Jewish customs around discipleship, formalized discipleship, and just how real relationships work. Like, how do those interplay with each other? Um, So let's start with the discipleship part. It's largely thought that during this time period that people became disciples of a rabbi, like formerly students of a rabbi, by application. All right? And so they would approach said rabbi and they would ask permission to follow him and ask permission to learn from them. And then based on uh, what that rabbi sees, he would choose to either approve them or not approve them. Yes, you can be my disciple or no, you cannot be my disciple. And so like in that system, what you're looking for is the best students, right? It's the way like students would work today. Right? Like I, I don't want to waste my time on somebody who's not really interested. I'm not going to waste my time on, on whatever. So that's kind of how we would operate. That's kind of how they would operate. And so the theory goes, the theory goes that in this moment, Jesus turns the tables like he just so frequently does, right? All right. And so they've been kind of informally following him around for a little while, but then they transition back to Galilee and things kind of die down for a little bit and they're uncertain. So they go back to work. And then Jesus shows up one day while these guys are minding their own business. And instead of following the custom, Jesus initiates the formal discipleship relationship by commanding them to follow him instead of waiting for them to ask cool. There's also really, really smart, Jesus-loving people who think that theory is the best theory ever. But there's another way of looking at it, and even though I'm on the fence, I kind of like this one better. I don't know which one's right, but I think I like this one better. 
Put yourself in the disciples' shoes for a second. You're a Galilean Jew who's come into the city for the religious festival. And while there, you hear a firebrand preacher who gets you excited and turns you into somebody who actually wants to do all of the things that you can possibly do to follow God rightly. But that preacher starts pointing to someone else. It's like, no, 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 that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So you're like, I guess I should follow that guy instead. And so you start following that guy, and so you hear him teach, and it's like nothing you've ever heard before, and then you see him perform miracles, and so clearly there's something special going on here. And then you, you watch him like driving people out of the temple, and you're starting to think, well, this guy's definitely going to sit on a throne sometime soon. And then suddenly John is arrested. And the city is buzzing about how John is arrested. And Jesus, who up to this point makes zero habit of explaining his reasoning to you or anyone else, Decides, I'm going to move to Galilee now. So he moves from the city to a rural village. Everything that you saw building, everything that you saw coming together now seems to run in the opposite direction. I mean, you still want to follow him. There's still something there. But I mean, if he's just going home, maybe I ought to go back to work. You ever been in a situation like that? And so I think that there are layers of story here that we don't really know. God just hasn't chosen to give us that. But what we do know is that while some guys who were ready to follow Jesus were doing their daily tasks, Jesus walks up to them and says, boys, let's go. It's time to follow me. Let's go. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I'll make you gatherers of people for my kingdom. And we're told that all four of those boys dropped what they were doing and followed him. They leave behind their work. James and John leave their dad behind in the boat to do all the work by himself. You think old Mr. Zebedee brought that up at the next family dinner? (laughs) Not like my family at all. Jesus begins his ministry in earnest, and he also gathers his disciples in earnest. We're taking steps, we're progressing through uh, commitment here. And so you've been following me, now it's time to follow me. We're getting serious about this. And what a ragtag bunch that he's, he's gathering for himself. Like, we haven't met all the disciples yet in Matthew's account, but so far we've got four redneck fishermen. I bet the campouts were legendary. But I need to get out in front of what, at least from my point of view, has been historically bad teaching about, his, about this. Both inside the church and outside the church. Uh, there's kind of developed this assumption uh, that, that the disciples were uneducated, possibly even illiterate. They were just country bumpkins who couldn't get out of their own way all the time. Uh, but we've got absolutely no historical evidence to actually back that assumption up. Um, when, when people outside of the church assume that, usually it's to try and discredit what the disciples did. How could they ever possibly achieve what Jesus wanted them to achieve? And so it must have been some other nefarious thing. Um, and so when people inside the church, though, assume that, usually what they're trying to do is celebrate what God had done. And so look at all that Jesus has done through guys who couldn't even get out of their own way. Well, isn't God amazing, right? Um, that's a better instinct. It's still wrong, right? Um, even only looking at these four, we see guys who, though, though lacking a higher level of education, still had a basic one. And so you and me, they provided for themselves and their families. They ran businesses. They, they sat obediently under spiritual teaching and were pious enough to show up for all the religious feasts. Like, these are good guys. They're not bumpkins. 
And that's just the four fishermen in the group. Down the road, we're going to add a guy who seems to be a lay theologian in Nathaniel. We're going to pick up a political zealot. We're going to pick up a tax expert. We're going to pick up a guy who manages property. Like, so we need to be really, really careful whenever we try to reduce the disciples down to some kind of teachable nugget because that's not what's going on. There's a lot of complex relationships here. And there's political and religious undercurrents always going back and forth between them. What we need to see, and what I think we can confidently teach, is that Jesus seems to intentionally go against the flow of what every other rabbi is gathering to himself. He's not looking for all the best and brightest theological students. He's looking for real people. He's not sorting through applications and picking the cream of the crop to perpetuate his yoke of teaching. No, Jesus is building his group for his purposes, and it seems to have an intentionally upside-down and otherworldly nature to it. He's doing that on a regular basis, it seems. But Jesus is beginning his ministry in earnest. He's gathering his disciples, but what does he do now? I mean, what's on the docket every day? Well, verse 23 tells us, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So what's Jesus doing? He's traveling around the region, teaching and proclaiming and healing. We're told he's going around to all the synagogues in Galilee. So what are those? What's what's a synagogue? Well, essentially it's a local Jewish church. Communities of Jews within the larger community of the town. That's what a synagogue is. Um, there are certainly similarities between first century synagogues and what we would call a Jewish synagogue today, but there's also a long list of distinctions there. Um, usually there was only one synagogue in a town, uh, but it could be more if that town was a really, really big place. Uh, but each community, big or small, had a local synagogue. and was kind of the Jewish identity of that community. Uh, but in terms of Jewish history, synagogues are a relatively new thing in the first century. They popped up shortly after the return from exile. So they've only been around for a few hundred years. And so for those who understand the vocabulary, we would call this a second temple phenomenon. All right? um, but essentially, the Israelites wanted to dedicate themselves to reading and teaching the word in a better way than what was present before the exile. Because look what happened before the exile. Right? They got themselves into a lot of trouble. So they kind of developed the system that if we have these local communities pop up all over the place where we dedicate ourselves to actually studying God's word, then maybe we'll keep ourselves out of the mess this time. That's what happened, which is a great, great theory, but often failed to deliver in practice. Um, The synagogues would often be as politically and economically focused as they were spiritually focused. The Pharisees were the the group that elevated teachers within the synagogues. The the Sadducees didn't care about that stuff. They weren't even present. But the the Pharisees, they they loved this action. So it was their job to elevate the teachers, and you had to get permission from them. But the opportunity to teach in the synagogues was open to several men throughout the community. If you were in good standing in the synagogue, you 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 were within the window. Let's go. But everyone would gather together, and they'd read from the scroll, and then they'd have someone stand up and teach about what that scroll just said. And the practice was initially begun uh, when Ezra read the law after the rebuilding of the temple. If you remember that story, they gather everybody, they, read, they build a platform, they read the law, and then the, the priests all are, are explaining the law to everyone as they're reading. And so this is the clear origin, the clear origin. There's no doubt about it, that this is the clear origin of the Christian sermon. Early Christian church, churches just modeled themselves off the structure of the Jewish synagogues. That's what they knew. Matthew tells us, Matthew tells us that in addition to Jesus going around and preaching repentance in the streets, that he also would go and sit in the local synagogue whenever he got into town and volunteer to teach. 
So what would Jesus teach when he was sitting in the synagogue? Well, Luke 4 gives us an insight on that. I think, I don't know if Paul's got it for the screen, uh, but if you can turn there, hold your finger, we'll come back to Matthew. Luke 4, starting in verse 16, it says this. It says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As was, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the, the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Verse 21. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What you have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Verse 24, and he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, um, none of them, but only to Zarephath uh, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were, was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Uh, verse 28, and when they had heard these things, all the, in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff but passing through their midst he went away all right so Luke tells us about this one time that Jesus showed up and, and taught in the synagogue and, and it's 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 his hometown it's a special occasion the volume might have been turned up a little bit all right all right if I were preaching in my hometown in Athens Texas like like I would be a little amped up, all right? So I don't know what Jesus' posture is going in here, but we do get a peek at Jesus' MO. Go into the place where people at a very minimum say they value God's word, read God's word, and then point to how he is the long-awaited fulfillment to that promise. And the people sitting there in that room, that claim does not go over their head. Not even a little bit. They understand exactly what he's saying, but they're also marveling at him. It's like, isn't this, isn't this just Joseph's boy? I remember watching him grow up. To which Jesus responds by saying, listen, I know you're going to struggle with this, but let me tell you about a couple of stories where God intentionally ignores his covenant people when they were in need so that he could bring salvation to the Gentiles instead. Which pours gasoline all over that fire. Right? We're told that they want to kill him and that they actively try to kill him. Again, if your mental picture of Jesus is limited to him being sweet and compassionate all the time, if that's all you've got in the tank for Jesus, then you're proving that you haven't actually read large chunks of his story. That's not who he is. Jesus picks a fight in this moment and then he slips out while everybody's raging at him. Have a good day, guys. <laughs> So you may be wondering, how in the world is Jesus gaining a following at all? I mean, if this is the kind of things he's saying, if he's, if he's intentionally digging in here, why would anybody follow this man? What's going on here? Well, there are a couple of reasons. For one, 
Jesus hasn't said anything that isn't true. It may be making a lot of people angry, but he's right. But any jerk can do the exact same thing. We see politicians do it all the time. What makes Jesus distinct is the third thing that Matthew tells us he's doing. He's also healing everybody. Now, this is hyperbolized language. I don't think Matthew means that there's literally no more disease or afflictions in all of Galilee in verse 23. Um, We know from other accounts that Jesus chooses to end what he's doing so he can go off to pray or end what he's doing so he can go off to the next town. That happens. But clearly, Jesus is doing enough for this kind of phrasing to make sense to the people watching it play out. Nobody's going, no, that's not what happened at all. No, Jesus is healing everybody. They may think that Jesus is talking like a madman, but he's also performing incredible signs and wonders that put an immediate check on everyone who would ever consider challenging him. Clearly, Jesus is no mere man, just saying things that the people don't like. Or as he claimed from, about himself from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon him to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim, proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Look at verse 24. Back to Matthew. Verse 24. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee to the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus' fame spreads quickly here. And so some of that fame is negative, like he's putting a lot of people off, but a lot of that fame is really, really positive. People are beginning to flock to him, right? And and not just from Galilee, like throughout all of Syria. At that time, Syria was kind of a a formal name that was given to the larger region that included Judea and Galilee, but even some other regions to the north and to the east of them. Uh, But Jews hated that uh, association. They probably would would not have liked Matthew using it here. So it's probable that Matthew uses that name as a moniker for everything in the region except Judea and Galilee. That's the theory. Uh, But his point is clear. Jews and Gentiles are all flocking to Jesus. Both. And that's made even clearer because we're told that people are coming from the Decapolis. Uh, the Decapolis was an unofficial region of, of the Roman province in the area. It was a network of 10 cities. So Deca and Polis, Decapolis, all right? That's how that works. It's a brilliant name, all right? Um, and so it's just to the east of Galilee. Eight of the 10 cities in that network were on the other side of the Jordan River. Two of them were on the, the western side in, in Galilee. Uh, they banded together for trade and kind of, kind of like a loose unionizing of themselves against Rome. So it's a really cool story. You ought to go read it on your own sometime. But cities that made up the Decapolis, all Gentile cities. Not a single one of them were Jewish. And they're all coming to Jesus too. We're told that crowds followed him around as he moved around from place to place to place, bringing him their sick. And so Jesus is proclaiming repentance and he's teaching with authority and he's gathering disciples out of the larger crowd and he's healing folks. The king is focusing his work and he recruits his court and he proves his messianic credentials. And so the clear question arises, what do you do with this guy? What do you do with Jesus? How do you respond to him? And there's an obvious answer. You follow him. 
There is no other answer. You follow him. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? The Bible teaches that because of our sin, that we are all separated relationally from God and that we are all owed the right and just punishment for that sin. The Bible calls that punishment hell. The sin separation is not something that Jesus just overlooks you know, because he's full of compassion and loving the least of these. No, in an eternal and otherworldly love for you, he goes right after addressing it. He calls it out for exactly what it is, and he goes to work to remove it from you. He calls you to repentance, and as he progresses more and more towards the cross, he will ultimately die for that sin. The Father sent the Son. He put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived sinlessly. He died sacrificially, and he rose victoriously as a vindication of his own perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith. And you can do that today. You can respond to Jesus by meeting Jesus. Man, I'd love to be helpful to you. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing in a second. That's a time that we set aside to give people space to respond. And Let's talk after we're done with that. I'd love to help you make sense of what following Jesus actually looks like. What about those of us who are already followers of Jesus? What do we do? Huh? How do we respond? Take a second, like a real second, and define in your own head what following Jesus means. Maybe you've got a long list of interactions with him. Maybe, uh, maybe you're impressed with his teaching or, 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 you know, or his miracles, and you think he's really awesome, whatever. And, or maybe you're impressed with something else. Awesome. But have you dropped the nets yet? Have you dropped the nets yet? Have you left your own work and ambition behind to follow him? Are there some folks in your circle of friends and families who question your sanity for what you're committing your life to? You got a Mr. Zebedee who doesn't understand at the family dinner. What's your knee-jerk response whenever Jesus says, all right, boys, let's go? Because followers follow. They seem to follow immediately. I don't know what you got to get worked out to get to that point in your own head and heart, but we can talk, man. Love to be helpful to you. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe for some of you, you to finally take the step of joining our church family. You guys had you here for a while. You, you pressed in, but you, you tested the waters. But it, maybe it's time to finally jump in. We can do something about that. Let's talk. Maybe you're here today and you need to, you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, but you've never, for whatever reason, done one of the things that he's commanded his followers to do, be baptized. Let's go. Let's, let's, let's do that. I, we can talk about that. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to step up and publicly say yes to some call that the king is putting on you to take his gospel somewhere far away from here. I don't know what that is. I don't know what the next step is, but I'd love to help you figure it out. We can talk about that too. But whoever you are, However, God's word is calling you to respond this morning. Let's respond together right now. Father, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for sending us a Savior. Who, as he loves tenderly, prophetically calls all to repentance. God, give us a, a more fully rounded picture of your son. You're so good to us. Thank you for calling us to yourself and making yourself known.
would we prepare ourselves for the next follow me moment and be ready to act accordingly. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you call people into your kingdom today? We love you. Thank you for loving us first and loving us best. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.